Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Yeah, there's an amazing trending topic right now on Twitter. It's hashtag Trump is dead. And I thought for just a second while we were talking, is it possible? Could it could it have happened that Trump died? And it appears to be Tim Heidecker. He tweeted uh, basically like misinformation about Trump. And I think as like a kind of fun test of Elon Musk's new freedom of speech doctorate or whatever it is that's going on on Twitter. Needless to say, I'm... I'm both loving it and hating it. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, I was like, wow, that'd be so cool if Trump died because he sucks ass. I mean, not that I wish death on anybody, but if someone were to die who was bad, I would obviously be not happy, but not upset, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, obviously, you have to respect the dead. And uh, Trump, you know. You have to. I mean, a dead Trump to me would get a lot of my respect. Like I'd say, hats off to you, sir, for mm-hmm. no longer being alive. Anyhow, but uh, but on the one hand, I'm like, wow, what interesting news that I'm not in any way excited about, but funny, funny situation with Trump dying. And then on the other hand, very upset because, not upset, I guess, but surprised to learn that perhaps Trump isn't dead. And uh, just, a, just a whole, uh, you know, potpourri, I would say, of, of emotions, a real, real mixed emotion situation. But anyhow, let's back up. Because we're talking about the now, and I want to talk about the recent now, the back then now, the now from a week ago. So for many months, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla Motors and the CEO of uh, SpaceX, I guess I want to say, and the CEO of Starlink also, I think. Anyhow, uh, he's been threatening to buy Twitter. It started as a joke on Twitter, of course. He's like, I should buy Twitter. And all the Elon Musk fanboys were like, yeah, Mr. Musk, do it. You know, like bring freedom of speech back to Twitter or whatever, because they think the freedom of speech doesn't exist or something on Twitter because they can't say the N word. 
I'm gonna, and this is all going to make sense in a second, but that is the reason why they think there's no freedom of speech on Twitter is because they want to say the N-word, but then they say it and then they get banned or whatever, or shadow banned or whatever fantasy they think is going on in their little incel brains. But uh, anyhow, they're like, Mr. Musk, please buy Twitter. We would love that. And then, you know, Elon sort of acted like he was going to and then was like, no, he's not going to do it. And then eventually made some formal offer for Twitter. Then Twitter accepted his offer. Then all these banks were like, hey, we're going to give you money for Twitter because you're Elon Musk is a very successful businessman. And you'd know what to do with a social network if you got one. And then in the midst of buying Twitter, Elon Musk was like, I'm not buying Twitter anymore. I just want to make sure that everybody has the lay of the land, okay? Then at some point, he's like, I'm not buying Twitter anymore. It's full of bots. Twitter sucks. It's terrible. Why would I spend $44 billion on that, which is what he was going to pay for it? Then the Twitter people were like, actually, you can't do that. You said you were going to buy Twitter, and now we have to go to court. We're going to take you to court in Delaware Chancery Court, which is a court that nobody had ever heard of until a couple of months ago. When Elon Musk was like, I don't want to buy Twitter anymore. They're like, we're going to take you to Delaware Chancery Court and you're going to have to buy Twitter. And then after a couple of weeks or a month of getting ready for the big trial for, you know, Elon Musk backing out of buying Twitter, he's like, oh, okay, I guess I'll buy Twitter because it turns out I'm going to lose this case. And if I lose it, either I'm going to have to buy Twitter by force because I signed a contract and that's what happens, or I'm going to like have to lay out a bunch of money, like billions and billions of dollars for nothing. So what seemed implausible, impossible, ridiculous, absurd, only a few months ago that the guy who runs Tesla, who is like an edge lord on Twitter, was going to own Twitter, uh, Elon Musk successfully completed his purchase of Twitter.com, also known as the internet's comment section. So now that I've given you all that background, Lyra, I'm sure you're feeling like you understand the situation now better than ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so Elon Musk owns Twitter. He's owned it for, I don't know, a week, less than a week, maybe at this point. I mean, when you hear this podcast, he'll have owned it for like a week or something. Let's call it that. Mm-hmm. He started by bringing a sink into the Twitter lobby and then doing a tweet that was like, I'm at Twitter, let that sink in. Which, you know, in this grand scheme of jokes is like one of the worst ones. Yeah. But, you know, fair game. Like you're trying, you know, he had David Fielder write that one for him or whatever, as alleged by a New York Times report that he has like he wants Nathan Fielder to be his friend or something. But if Nathan Fielder gave him that, that sounds like Nathan Fielder pranking Right. Him. That's correct. That Nathan Fielder is doing the ultimate troll where he's like, yeah, Elon, like, I like (laughs) you. Like, you're cool. Like, let me help you out. Like, I'd love to write some jokes for you. And then he writes like really bad, dumb jokes that all people who are legitimately funny, who aren't like an incel, because I don't think incels can be funny personally. They're like, that's not funny. And Elon Musk is like, this is cool. Nathan Fielder gave it to me. Nathan Fielder's like, I mean, he wouldn't do mwahaha or whatever, but you know, in his mind, I would assume something like that. Anyhow, So he arrives at Twitter, he takes over Twitter, he fires the CEO, the CFO, the head of like trust and security, who I guess like all the Elon Musk fanboys hate because she's a woman and like banned Donald Trump. And then uh, immediately, 
immediately all of these data tracking services, all these Twitter tracking services are like, we've seen a 15,000% rise or 1,500% rise in the N-word being tweeted on Twitter. And we've seen like a 3,000% rise in ivermectin being mentioned on Twitter. And it's like immediately these people think that Elon Musk has like pulled the whatever the ripcord of censorship that's been happening on Twitter and they can talk about all these dumb things and say all these like rude things and, you know, talk about how they hate the Jews and hate black people. And so that starts like just spiraling out of control on Twitter. So then in addition to, you know, the rampant N word use and other horrible things um, that spiked Elon Musk then retweets some bullshit story about Paul Pelosi, some like completely unfounded zero fact possessing story about you know this nancy pelosi essentially kidnapping an assassination attempt uh her husband was beaten with a hammer and he tweets some story about i believe it's like him having a prostitute there or something some ridiculous fantasy land QAnon right-wing conspiracy that's totally baseless in every way shape and form not bounded by any sort of fact whatsoever and of course you know rightfully so there's an enormous amount of backlash but by the time the backlash is happening and Elon Musk, he did delete the tweet. Hundreds of millions of people have now seen this like total like misinformation bullshit. And meanwhile, Elon Musk has tweeted some message to advertisers, which is like he's not he doesn't want to let this become a hellscape, which obviously isn't true because it's immediately a hellscape. I mean, listen, if you're listening to this, you probably already know this because you're very online. And how much more can I say about this? But the, in the few days that Elon Musk has owned Twitter, it's very obvious that one, he doesn't know what to do with it. And that two, whatever he does with it is probably going to be dumb and bad. Uh, and three, he'll be blamed for all of it by his critics and loved for it by his fans, which is great. So this sort of culminates with some story that he's going to start charging people for blue check marks. So the idea that like, what will it be like when Elon Musk owns Twitter is like quickly coming into focus, right? People who are bad and stupid and shitty feel emboldened. Elon Musk as a leader is sort of bad and stupid and shitty in a bunch of different ways about information. That's not to say he's not a smart person. Like you can be really smart about certain things, but be dumb about others. Like I certainly am that about all sorts of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like, watching the end of Twitter to me in real time. And I've like talked about it and I've written about the end of Twitter in a, 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 over the years, because I think it's always been a social network. That's kind of the most on life support of all of the social networks in the sense that it never really found its stride. It's best moments are kind of the worst moments, right? Like for Twitter, the biggest it's ever been is when Donald Trump was tweeting like a maniac on Twitter. I said before, it's like the comment section for all of the content everywhere on the internet. And that is really what it feels like. You know, if anything, as I look at what is happening with Twitter in this post-pandemic world, in this like very online world where everybody feels, I think increasingly this desire for distance from the discourse, like distance from the always online state that we have lived in. I see a kind of logical conclusion in the Twitter purchase, in Elon Musk owning it, which is that everything he's done thus far in the short period of time, and I mean everything, has been a signal that the people who really like to use it are going to leave or are going to not enjoy it and want to leave. And in fact, there was a report a week or two ago that Vice had that 
the super users of Twitter, which is that it's like 10% of the users who create 90% of the content that most people are interacting with on Twitter are already, there's already attrition there. They're already leaving. And to me, what I've seen with Elon owning it is that attrition is only going to be accelerated. And it's not that they're going somewhere else. I think there's an entire generation of people who've used this thing that just don't want to be anywhere at all right now. That They don't want to be online. They don't want to be in constant arguments with random people on the internet. They don't see a utility in trying to make their point in a sort of black hole of opinion where ideas go to die, which is sort of what Twitter is. I'm one of these people. I used to tweet all the time. I was tweeting constantly until a few years ago and then sort of slowly ebbed away. And more and more, like I'll sit down, I'll open Twitter, I'll look at it, I'll even maybe write a tweet about something or read about to, I'm about to retweet something or comment on something that somebody said. And then I just think, what's the fucking point? You know, what's the point? Like I'm yelling into the void, they're yelling into the void and nothing good is going to come of it. And so in the midst of all of this, you still have got this kind of specter of Twitter being the, the people talking about like the town square and the place where, you know, this is the global consciousness and, where we all are talking and experiencing life on planet earth and how we're going to, you know, go to the become glowing orbs of pure thought or whatever, if we just have enough discourse on Twitter. And, and, you know, I think in a way this whole thing exposes kind of the smallness of it, right? The kind of the, uh, the fragility of all of it. And is it actually the town square, you know, and if it's the town square for whatever reality we live in, is it the place where we're watching public hangings, or is it the place where we see the greatest philosophers of our time engage in discourse? And I think it's probably the former more than it is the latter. And everybody's kind of like, yeah, I don't want to watch the hanging. Like, sure, some people will still show up for the gore, but a lot of people just don't want that to be a part of their lives. And so, you know, as I'm sort of contemplating the end of this era, which is a post V2 social media, like I'd say like Facebook and Twitter are kind of V2, if MySpace and, and Friendster are V1 of social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter are sort of V2, and the sort of like post V2 world that we're going to live in. In thinking about all of this stuff and in thinking about the ramifications of not just Twitter, but this era of social media kind of coming to a close, you know, I thought about people that I know and that I've observed who've actually maybe lived this and really thought about it. And I started thinking about Gia Tolentino. Lyra, do you know Gia Tolentino? I do. She was big on Twitter. And she was somebody who was like a central character on Twitter. Very online. I think Gia represents a very online generation, which I think I'm part of for sure. And I think there's a whole generation of people who were raised by the internet. And I talk about these people all the time. To me, they're a real demographic that's very different than most people. But then there's a whole segment of that audience that is like, I don't want to be on the internet anymore. And I think Gia, who... Uh, wrote this amazing book, Trick Mirror, and also, again, previously super online, maybe like the vanguard, or at least has been thinking a lot about what it's like if you're not so online anymore and what that means for you as a human being on planet Earth. So G is here. G is here, and we're going to talk to her now about the internet.
before we get started, I just want to say that you have done something on the internet that has sort of like broke my brain a little bit about your name. On Instagram, your name is Gia Tortellini. Is this correct? That's like your screen yes. name. Okay. Yes. And so when I see your name now, like wherever I see it, my brain is like, your actual name is wrong and it should be Tortellini, which makes no sense. So congratulations. Uh, that's ideal for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's OPSEC. It's, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's just a better name. It's, You're harder to find. It's also slightly unprofessional. Like I, I really believe in yes. that. And that's kind of my stance on all of it. You basically quit Twitter for two years. Can you talk about what spurred that and, you know, the experience of what it's been like? Yeah, I mean, I had gotten on Twitter late because I was in the Peace Corps until 2011. And I didn't get on Twitter until like late 2012, I think, when I started grad school. And I was starting to write for the internet. And I was outside New York. I didn't know anyone in New York. And I had been without internet for a year in the Peace Corps. And so it seemed incredibly generative and interesting. And, you know, I could see all these things that I couldn't see from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I could listen in on these conversations and whatever. I wouldn't have a career if not for it. It was my only connection to the media world. It was like I was quote unquote good on Twitter and good with these mechanisms of self-commodification and self-broadcasting that have become the center of the internet. So I kind of wrote that and I was having fun. And I remember I was in the, the all websites campfire. Everyone was making jokes about how they wanted the internet to burn down all the time. And I was like, what are these jaded people talking about? You know, it's like the internet is so fun. Get on my Google reader every day and discover something new, you know? Yeah. But then, you know, that was like my first two years on Twitter was feeling like that. You said that was like around 2012? 2012. 2014, yeah. I moved to New York to take a job editing features for Jezebel and then got engulfed in, you know, in a different kind of scale, right? A website where you could run something and, you know, this was very new to me where you could get 100,000 people re reading it and yelling at you very, very quickly. And yeah. I found it exciting. I also found it a little dangerous. You know, you remember Gawker was constantly getting in trouble and we were always fucking up, but it, we had this total freedom and it was like, the first time that I had really experienced how intensely adversarial Twitter could be. And mostly I was like, well, it's kind of a gauntlet. You figure out if you can navigate it. If you can't, you can't. And then I started working at The New Yorker in 2016. And around the time that Trump got elected, I was like, OK, this whole Arab Spring, like promise of the global town square where everything trends towards liberal democracy and increasing freedom, the whole Obama era democratization of media that I had been a part of, you know, all these people that never would have had any entry into the field like me, you know, who were able to because of Twitter, the full on identitarian backlash against the Obama era opening up of culture that was made possible via the internet was hitting right around then. Right. The first essay in my book is about this. I was writing it to try to go about answering one specific question. And that question was, why did the internet feel so good 10 years ago? And why does it feel so, so bad right now? And, you know, implicitly, like, what are the ways in which it will continue to get worse, right? Yeah. Anyway, so I finished my book in early 2018. And like every year I would intervene in my seasonal depression during Super Bowl weekend by taking myself to the beach, like in North Beach and just getting high and reading books like completely by myself, not speaking to anyone for like three days. And I did that and I, I just turned my book in and the first book that I opened on the beach while extremely stoned was Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, um, you know, which is an incredible book. And it is, you know, making the argument, you know, basically against capitalist instrumentalization, this idea that everything we need to do needs to be productive, visible, 
that in fact the actually important things in life are not quantifiable they're not right. efficient they're like caregiving and maintenance and all these things that these platforms don't recognize even as as any part of life at all like these thoughts that cannot be put onto twitter basically and i was like okay i have to really change my relationship with the internet so right then i put blockers on my computer and on my phone that I couldn't use social media for more than 45 minutes a day. And and so I, I went... Like you, would, like you would actually block you? Because like there's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I do the nuclear. Okay. And well, and it's, it's called self-control on Google Chrome and I use freedom on my, you know, the super Orwellian, like, I got to turn on my self-control and my freedom, you know? That on its own is such a dystopic sort of weird... Yeah, but I needed it. Like, I can't stop looking at my stuff on social media. So I have an app called Freedom or whatever, which allows me to be a person, not this thing on the internet. Yeah, and then once Freedom would stop working because it's a glitchy app, I would be like, oh my God, my freedom. Like, what happened to my freedom? <laughs> and and so starting in 2018, I'd already been really significantly trying to curb my usage. And then in 2019, my book came out. I had a best case scenario experience, but I found it just horrifically um, self-alienating. Right. I was always like, it's okay as long as I can be completely myself. It's okay as long as, as, long as I'm not manufacturing a different self for the internet. Right. But then the proportions that resulted from having a book that was, that was much more successful than I ever, 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 ever had an inkling that it possibly even could be, you know, it's like a book of nine, 10,000 word essays. Like, right. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Obama releases something every year where he's like, these are the books that yeah. I loved or whatever. And your, your book is on it. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, you won't, you don't expect that you don't. And, and it was just suddenly it was not possible to be the fundamental way that I had always believed in being in the world, which is just totally reciprocal, totally open to anything. Like strangers would send me long emails and I'd email them back. And, and I was just like, this is no longer proportionately possible. And it right. made me upset, making me feel like there was some reason to put some sort of guard up, made me feel really bad and weird and not at all like myself. And so I started tweeting way less. And then the pandemic happened six months later. And the feeling that I'd had since my book came out that I needed to get off the internet, that I was too visible both in terms of praise or negativity, you know, it proved itself to be true. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. 
Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry, my light, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I had a big wave of sort of being the Twitter main character in in Meltdown May of the pandemic. There was this poem that went viral about me that some old dude had written. Oh, you know, a it, poem about you? Yeah, and it was like, and some literary magazine published it with the really wow with the title Gia Tolentino, and and now it's on knowyourmeme.com. Like it was just like I need to God, and I was still on it for work to some extent, but then in August 2020, I was about to have a baby, and I was like, you know, it's now or never because I'm going to be up all night in the middle of the night for for months, and I'm going to be scrolling, I'm going right. to be reading something, and I don't want it to be Twitter. And so I figured I should make a clean break now and see how long I can stay off. And I'm still off. I mean, there's so much there that you've touched on. That yeah, sorry, is... that was such a long answer. I'm sorry. No, no, it was good. It was good because you actually went through like a million of the things that have been on my mind and are, are sort of weighing on me as I think about this idea of ourselves in places like Twitter and how we view ourselves and what that means like for how we live. I think we've built an unsustainable system, right? There's all this like, very altruistic language around every social network about how it's this like lofty thing that we're all hurtling towards Jack Dorsey's. Like it's the, you know, global consciousness and people call Twitter a town square and Mark Zuckerberg talks about how his pursuit in life is to connect the world. But it seems increasingly that the scale of those connections is like breaking people's minds. It's like kind of ruining like humanity in a way. Yeah. And so you've kind of backed away from it. And I wonder like, does something come after this? Like, what is the next stage of this? Like, does it just metastasize? Does it get worse? Or like, is there an off ramp? Have you found the off ramp? Like what, what is your view on that? I think that there is no off ramp within the economic incentives of the companies themselves. Right. I mean, they, they literally cannot be profitable unless more people spend more time on there. And there's no way for that to be possible without all of those things happening that break our brains. Right. You know, like I, I always think about the way Patricia Lockwood put it in that great novel of hers that just came out about the Internet. The attention moves on the Internet like the shine on a school of fish. What we're talking about is just the baseline logic of capitalist accumulation, right? Where the teleological vision is perpetual growth, perpetual increase, perpetual volume, perpetual scale. I don't want to downplay, 
you know, let's say Me Too or Black Lives Matter. But I, I really think that the movements that have had real teeth in the real world that have come up off of Twitter and Facebook, like they have all been reactionary and they have far outweighed the positive consequences of, you know, the progressive gains that have been, you know, won on these platforms. Right. The, the kinds of actual connection that have been made are incredibly destructive. And, you know, I would think about during the protests in 2020, I got all of my information about where to go off of Twitter and off of Instagram, you know, but the action was happening offline. Right. And the effect overall is that of profound isolation and loneliness and alienation and, you know, there is no way that I can see any of these companies doing anything but promising one and delivering the other. Right. I mean, most of my friends have stopped tweeting. You know, I'll say that, you know. There is a sort of generational thing happening. Yeah. I mean, I've had similar experience. I haven't like full on left Twitter or any of these social networks. But like the amount of posting that I do comparatively is way, way down. Like I can barely find anything to talk about. And I think there is something that has happened driven by the pandemic a little bit. The fact that we've had just so much internet that it almost feels like overwhelming, but but also it does seem like there's sort of our maturing relationship with the internet. Yeah, it's like, why does this need to be said in public? Yeah, I mean, right. In your book, you quote Jason Kotke, who's like one of the original bloggers on the internet. He says something like, it didn't make any sense to write my personal thoughts down, not on the internet. It reminded me of Truth or Dare, the Madonna documentary, when Warren Beatty's talking to Madonna about how, like, they're filming and he hates it, you know, because he's old and she's, like, way younger than him and she's making this documentary, which is really good for her. And they're filming everything and he's like, there's nothing to say off camera. Would you say something if it's off camera? Which is exactly what he was expressing. So there's obviously, like, these generational sort of ebbs and flows of this. Like, the one thing that I keep hoping for, and I think we see a little bit with, like, the attrition of things, like, on Facebook, where it's becoming more and more old people and like boomers and fewer and fewer young people want to be a part of it. Is it a generational change that happens where people reject this? Yeah, I think every generation has their social network and the boomers have Facebook and, you know, millennials have Instagram and and Gen Z has TikTok or whatever else. Right. Like, I think that <laughs> right, but that's the, is that better? No, I, th- I, I don't think it's better. I mean, I don't think it's better until, you know, it would be great if the next iteration would be one in which proportions were gated you know, people are desiring some sort of online interaction that will reflect rather than distort real life. And right. I felt a little bit that way. I was a kid that liked to be on stage and loved to talk to everybody. And I felt that I felt like, why would I not like have my thoughts open to the world and see who was interested? Right. It's also part of the personality of being a writer. You know, it, I mean, that's literally still my job. But I do feel like there's been a big sort of mountain where there were a lot of people who were like, why wouldn't we do this? Why wouldn't we see what happens? What could result if a bunch of people are looking and who we could become and what and what we could make of this? And then we saw it and we were like, no. <laughs> right. We took the algorithmic and economic incentive that had become like an emotional one, this idea of what is the maximum number of people that I could get to see and applaud this? Right. It, it's a basic human desire in a lot of ways that was just stretched beyond all reason by the profit model of these companies. And we saw what it means. And it means every day on Twitter, there's a main character, you know, like it, it means doxing, it means getting SWAT teams sent to your door, it means things that people actually don't want. (laughs) Right. I don't think that you could make a social media company that is as profitable as these companies would like to be on any humane structure. 
Like there's no scale that's humane that fits with like the capitalistic model. Yeah, I don't think that the fantasy of endless growth will ever <laughs> will ever map onto like any sort of healthy social network. You know, I, I don't think it's really possible in any industry with any model at all, but certainly not with social media. On top of this conversation about how the internet is sort of breaking what we know of like humanity, how much of it is real, right? Because we talked a little bit at the beginning about Twitter and the scale of its audience. And, and you and I are people in media and we are surrounded by other people in media. And in some ways, those people do chart the conversation for yeah. a much larger audience that isn't in places like Twitter and maybe isn't on Facebook. But is that real? You've been off Twitter. You've been basically not using it for several years. Did you feel in that time that like the things that were happening on the internet... Did they crop up in your regular, with quotes around it, I don't, you know, your regular real life, did it feel like without Twitter that you were still exposed to the kinds of things that were happening on Twitter? Or did it change like your perception of what actually is very real in the world? I think getting off Twitter didn't change because I think I had registered, you know, these things where you're like, why the fuck is everyone talking about fucking shrimp and cinnamon toast crunch or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> like th those things always registered. They had been registering for a really long time. You know, I think you spent yeah, but that actually what you just cited is interesting because it is like the six o'clock news a story towards the end of the broadcast where they're like shrimp and what is it? Cinnamon toast, crunch. Yeah. Like, shrimp and cinnamon toast crunch. And it's like a little item about how some guy found a shrimp in his cinnamon toast crunch, which like there's stories like that all the time. You did not cite some big drama that was playing out, right? Like, is it stuff like that? Like did it actually break through to reality? Well, I, it's a little more, it's a little more personal in this respect because I had had several sort of shifts in my attentional priorities, kind of both intentional and not. And I had written about Internet ephemera a lot. I'd written about fucking memes, you know, like I was just writing about garbage all the time because I loved having my face in garbage all day, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, as soon as COVID started and my face was in nothing but garbage all day and I didn't have this vibrant, you know, rough around the edges, just normal life, you know, to loom much larger than the Internet every time I, you know, put down my phone. I stopped being interested in internet ephemera. I stopped being interested to see if I could write 1100 words about what some bullshit thing that a bunch of teenagers were saying could mean about whatever, you know, like I, I couldn't write that kind of piece anymore. And I had always blocked out a lot of things. I had always <laughs> right. taken a lot of pleasure in just not learning about something that it didn't seem like I needed to know about. I, I think that one of the brain diseases that Twitter gives people is the idea they need to have an opinion on everything. This is um, a disease that's also common among opinion writers, like of which I, I was and am kind of one. And so I'd always. It's just like posters disease. Is this yeah, the... posters disease. Bill, it's it's adjacent to posters right. disease. I think it's like op-ed right. writers disease, right? Where you're like, what does this right. mean about this? It's like sometimes shit doesn't have to mean shit about shit, and you can just you know like read a book and right. and whatever, right? right? And so it's like what Bridgerton says about <laughs> yeah, us. It's and like, it's who, like, does it say anything? Like, unless you really mean it, you don't have to write that. You don't have to. Right. And but that, isn't that a product of the hot take industrial complex? Like, isn't yeah. that, aren't we, we've accelerated the need for content. So people have to constantly come but up I with think like, actually the hot take industrial complex has, has, um, has folded a bit. People have realized that like, actually you can just sit this one out. Although I get on Twitter now and I see people being like, Hey, you can just sit this one out. And I'm like, the real sitting this one out is just not saying not anything. Saying yeah. Not, not saying, saying that, that, you know, well, that's like, people that's like can't the, resist. No, yeah. I know it's, it's, you're right. The hot take world has somewhat imploded 
because and I think that's good. I no, mean, it's I, definitely good because like the scale of content is, and this is feeds right back into what we're talking about is this like belief that there is this sort of infinite audience that you can go and grab. Like if you have a million people reading, maybe you can have 5 million people reading, maybe 10 million. And to your point about the capitalistic sort of underpinnings of it, there's this demand for up to the level of, hey, you're an op-ed writer and you have to write something about this, but down to, I have to say something on Twitter, right? There's like the machine demands. Yeah. I mean, and, and literally the machine does demand it. Back to the thing that you were talking about earlier with the vision of the self. This is, again, something that I wrote about in the book, but it's like the greatest pleasure that I've ever had in my life are moments in which my selfhood has dissolved, right? Moments where I, I feel a total dissolution of the ego, whether it's I'm like around my friends or I'm out dancing or I'm on acid or, you know, like walking in the park with my dog, just things where you feel the boundaries of yourself disappearing on the internet. All it does is shore those up and position you at the center of a universe at which we are most certainly not the center. And that was something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And since getting off Twitter, one thing, I have not been able to spend any less time on my phone. Oh, really? My brain did feel clearer and better because I, you know, didn't have this useless cacophony of, you know, of shit that no one would remember the next day. You know, I, I didn't have that pointed in, in my eyes at all time. Right. But I sort of was secretly like, maybe I'll start having these amazing ideas. Like maybe my brain will start being incredibly original. Like genius will pour forth because I right. finally, you know, and it's like, no, I was right, actually- we need time to be bored or whatever so we can generate- Yeah, and if anything, I was dumber being off Twitter because my brain wasn't just kind of being right. like sharpened by these little like razor sharp, tiny, useless irritants. But Right, but were you off Twitter and Instagram and everything else? Like, I don't know what you use. I mean, obviously, like I said, you're on Instagram. You don't post that I much. use I use Instagram. I don't follow celebrities. Like, I follow my friends, and then I follow a lot of, like, national park and dog and meme accounts. Right. But so Instagram is a pretty positive space for me. <laughs> well, what's interesting about Instagram is I've actually, I feel allergic now almost to seeing, like, regular Instagram images. Like I think there's something about, again, maybe you it's want, that, like the deep grape juice boys, like memes. Yes. <laughs> no, I want, I'm like, I, everything I followed recently has been like largely meme accounts. Yeah. And it is just, I've been like putting these in like a WhatsApp conversation that I have with, with some friends and family. And they were like, you have posters disease. Like what's going on? Like all you're doing is like putting these memes in here. And I'm like, yeah, just are like they good memes. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I like to think that they're great, but yeah. uh, I mean, they're not mine, you know, I'm just borrowing, yeah. but it's interesting though. That is a place where if you go, back a few years ago, pre-pandemic for sure, Instagram was like, you might follow people who like looking at their content is some form of self-harm where you're like, this person seems to be having like a life that is so good and so enjoyable and so beautiful. And my life by comparison feels so small and ugly. I assume the mainstream user is still looking at that stuff more, but I think that is still the economic engine is like, hot women on vacation being like, I have anxiety. And like, that's, that's it now. Right. But their usage is dropping like precipitously. Yeah. Like, I mean, somebody was just tweeting about, <laughs> I sound so deranged. I'm like, somebody yeah, was just yeah, tweeting yeah. about how Instagram's users are like <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah. going, you know, leaving the service, but that is true. Yeah. Um, the numbers are going down and like, I guess where I get to, and perhaps, you know, where we can conclude this exploration of what the fuck is going on on the internet and what happens next you know, is it that, okay, well, all that attention just went over to TikTok and like on TikTok, not only is it further reinforcement of some of the craziest shit that you've ever seen in your life yeah. and it all happening in real time, like video, like you don't even get a chance to like process it because like you're literally watching it before you know what yeah, you're doing. Yeah, it's unbelievable decontextualization machine. It's wild. 
But then it's also, well, you know, the data is being sold to like foreign entities and whatever's 100%. going on, you know, like, yeah. you know, is it just that it just we keep digging a hole? Like, is TikTok the next big world destroying hole that we are digging for ourselves? Or is it that that we don't just get better at this as a society? You think as long as it's being driven by capitalism, there's always going to be something that is chipping away at our identity and our humanity and our society? Yeah, I mean, I try to think about it in terms of like what are the incentives of the company and then what are the incentives of the people on them and and the extent to which like on TikTok I mean the incentive of the company is to get as many raw hours of video that can then be analyzed by powerful AI you know to increase like repressive surveillance technology you know on Uyghurs like it's like you know right. I mean it's um, that's not sci-fi like that's actually happening no that that is exactly what's happening I mean th that is the mildest version of what's happening but the the user's incentive is also to upload as many hours of raw video as possible that are watched by as many people as possible and engaged with as many as people as possible and I think like take offline capitalism we you know to whatever extent that still exists I think that you know, we still do find ways to preserve basic humanity in the grip of mechanisms that are incredibly dehumanizing, right? I mean, the real estate market, right? Like just anything, like the workers at Amazon, like managed to unionize and build community in the middle of a machine that is literally built to break them into the ground. Like I, I think that people are always capable of of surprising themselves and resisting the incentives that are presented to them. But I also think that the, you know, if the, if the company can only make money, if people engage in this endless capitalist accumulation of growth, then people are going to do it. Then that is going to be the controlling behavior on the platform. Right. And the dynamics that result from that will be the controlling ones in culture. And we will get QAnon and we will get people storming the Capitol and we will get constant conspiracy. We will get the total dissolution of any idea of shared truth. I think my point of view with all of them was like, use it as long as you still feel like a human. Right. And with me, I can still easily use Instagram and feel like a human. Um, but for Twitter, I couldn't anymore. You know, people either embrace not feeling like humans, which plenty of people do and have, or we back off. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. 
Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry, my light, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great! More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over fifteen thousand jokes to over three million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to the bright side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the bright side. It's strange to feel like this Luddite quality coming out in me when I'm not that old and am such a creature of the digital world. Right. The best of what people are looking for in these platforms barely approaches the things that we actually want in real life, right? The kind of connection, the kind of love, the kind of being seen, the kind of fun that people are really, really looking for, it only really exists in real life. And I think people know that. Yeah. You know, probably if you talk to a 15-year-old right now, like they both are deeper in it than either of us ever were. And they also probably know that better than either of us do, you know? And I, and I wonder if those two truths will sort of pull on each other from opposite ends of the spectrum on people's minds. You know, like the, the recognition of the harm and then the participation in it sort of feels like what we're doing with many things vis-a-vis -vis this stage in, you know, American history. But I think what's amazing where you get to, I mean, basically where you get to in that argument is sort of like we have to alter the systems that make the world function to change the way we behave within the systems. Like capitalism as a concept, or at least the, the version of it that currently exists, where it is like such an insanely top-down capitalism where the people who are in the machine have so little power to control like their actual fate inside of it. It is like we have to like smash capitalism. Is like sort of, you know, like... A fundamental. I think that's the answer to every single problem we have, like climate change and, and everything. I mean, that, that is the answer. Right. But I also easy, think, very easy. But there's also a different way into that answer. The way that I more think about that is that I don't think we were at large would have this kind of unhealthy, compulsive relationship to the Internet. If, for example, let's take the conversation around like representation, right? It's like the frenzy around representational change exists only because the avenues towards material change are so cut off and protracted, right? It's like if all of these sectors of labor were not crumbling and if economic stability were not in many ways like tied, especially in case of emergency to visibility on these platforms, like your GoFundMe if your kid's fucking shot in school, you know, like it's like, the way that these platforms are are serving as sort of poor substitutes for civic mechanisms and like 
financial layers of security that have been hollowed out by the system. You know, it, it's like I think that right. that if if American life was better, the way that we would interact with the internet would be different. There's a raw and desperate edge to this desire to establish like the attentional equivalent of a tiny 401k or something. Right. Right. We've dissolved the sense of like support of community and we're like looking for it on these vast platforms that say they will deliver community and connection and support and all those other things that if we had actual like support and communities and like net- networks within our society that's that are taking care of people. Yeah, like people felt be- valued in their work by their politicians and by their government, you know, like we'd be post a lot less. (laughs) No, I mean, there'd be a lot less to say, right? If you had healthcare and you didn't have like this insane student loan stuff and you could like rent an apartment and not go broke, like you wouldn't have as much to be posting about, which, but that's maybe the system. Is that it? Like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I think you and I both are feeling probably pretty depressed about the current state of the internet. It gives me a little glimmer of hope because if people like us, and other people are feeling this and seeing it and trying to act on it, maybe there's the possibility that we actually can affect some kind of change in the grander scheme here. And so that, if I can end this on a hopeful note, that I think has given me enough fuel, at least for the next 24 hours. Yeah, I have faith in that too. I think even just like simple refusal, (laughs) like simple refusal, I've been thinking about it, you know, I don't know, like with the abortion stuff, like jury nullification, like I've been thinking more about like a simple, quiet refusal to participate in various things that are, you know, pitched to us as normal and ubiquitous and and necessary. Like the, you know, the reason I was able to get off Twitter is because I accrued the professional freedom that allowed me to not need it to get work. Me seven years ago could not have literally afforded to get off Twitter because I needed it to help me get a job. But right. but I think there is something to be said for like constantly evaluating what are the freedoms that are available to me that I would like to make use of that I am not making use of in, in any direction. And I think there is, yeah, there's always more vis-a-vis social media than you yeah. think. Well, I agree and also feel like, I don't know, more conversations like this can maybe start to get... I'm not saying that I personally have any impact on anybody, but it's like it's nice to talk to another person who is aware of this thing that feels like it's just underpinning all of the way that that the internet functions, you know. And like, I think everyone I don't is. No, I, I want there to be everyone get off Twitter. No, I mean getting off Twitter is part of it, but I do think it's also like when you talked about the things where you kind of lost yourself and you felt like those were like your best experiences where you weren't thinking about yourself, like dancing or walking the dog or whatever. Like you're talking about things that also are happening in physical reality. Exactly. I mean, you didn't name a single thing that was like something you were doing on your computer or on a phone. And so I do think there's again not to be a luddite. And I mean, what's so crazy is I remember arguing with my dad when I was like 12 about how the internet was going to change the world and how important it was but there is something that is like that missing piece does seem to be what is it like now to be physically around other people and to have to engage in things that are not like your words on a screen versus somebody else's and i think that's like yeah a big part of the missing link well and i think everyone realized that there's there's so much more space now for people to understand that post or you know not post pandemic but at this point in the pandemic where it's like there's no substitute for it Affirmation on the internet at its most kind of thrilling has always felt alienating to me. But love in real life, that feels real, you know? And there is nothing like unsurveilled, unmediated presence. The internet at its best can only kind of, you know, approach a shadow of that. And we're 
little animals like we we are <laughs> and, and we need to we need to get out into a field yeah <laughs> and run free uh gia thank you so much this is a fascinating conversation i really appreciate it. i feel like there's probably like two more hours of stuff that we could have talked about and so we'll have to do this again sometime yeah thank you for having me and i am very interested to see where this goes <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> So what are you going to do now? Well, I got to pay for that blue check mark. Number one, I got to give him 20 bucks a month to get, keep my blue check mark going. We didn't even talk about this, that he's like arguing with Stephen King. Yeah. Stephen, do we talk about this? Stephen King's like, are you joking? Like you should pay me to be on Twitter. Like, I'm not going to give you $20 a month. And Elon Musk is like, okay, how about $8? And it's like, dude, this is not how you run a business. This is not how you come up with the plan to save Twitter is like haggling with Stephen King on on Twitter about the cost of a blue check mark. By the way, like the idea of paying a monthly fee to have a blue check mark on Twitter is absurd. Anyhow, so what am I going to do? Uh, I'm going to continue not giving a shit increasingly about like the discourse on social media because uh, what I know to be true is that there are more important things in life. And that doesn't, it doesn't define reality. You know, so I don't have a problem with remaining. Like, I'm, I still have a Facebook account. I never quit Facebook, but I certainly don't fucking use Facebook. And I don't think about Facebook. It's not part of my diet every day on the internet. And so I think increasingly, like, Twitter is going to look like that and Instagram is going to look like that. And then we'll find something new. I mean, maybe it's TikTok, but maybe there's something else. Or maybe there's nothing. Maybe we just go back to email. And I'm fine with that. <laughs> So, like, the question is, like, does Twitter fucking matter? Like, actually, what I'll say is it matters if we are, like, interacting with reality and real people and not fighting with random people on the Internet. That's unhealthy. But in the grand scheme of the reality that we exist in, we think Twitter is important because media people are on Twitter and a few celebrities are on Twitter and a very, very small group of people like Elon Musk thinks Twitter is important. He's a billionaire, a very successful CEO. He loves to have people tell him that he's got funny and cool ideas. And he's on Twitter all the time acting like that's the place where all the stuff happens. But for most people in the world, for most human beings in America and beyond, Twitter is not the stuff that is happening. Twitter is not the place where real things happen. The internet and technology are very, very important and can do amazing things. But at the end of the day, not everything should be equally weighted. And increasingly, like stuff I see on Twitter or stuff that you see on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram needs to be taken with a giant grain of salt. Like that's not reality. Reality exists outside of that. And we've got to grapple a lot more with that. We think the value of information is how fast you can get it. There literally used to be this thing, and people still do it, and it is someone commenting first. Like when we used to publish blog posts on many websites that I ran, you would write the story, you'd put it up, and then somebody would comment as quickly as possible first, meaning I was the first person to comment on this story, okay? Twitter does that at scale. It's like, I'm the first person to tell you, like, Michael Jackson is dead. How did he die? Where did he die? When did he die? Did he really die? You don't know any of that fucking information. What is my account? You don't know. I have a blue check mark? Maybe, maybe not. 
If you look at my bio, does it say I'm a reporter for the New York Times? Maybe. Maybe I'm just a fucking guy. Maybe I'm an orderly at the hospital. But like, the point is, you could see it first. Michael Jackson is dead. What you know about Michael Jackson's death is non-existent. But like, that is like the core of misinformation. It is like, I can say some bullshit on Twitter or anywhere else, and it can be spread around really quickly, so quickly and so much that people think it's real. It collapses the context into a fucking bite-sized little sound bite, and now that's the fucking thing that is broadcast out into the ether. And like that is why it's such a destructive and shitty and useless part of the internet. It is, and it is really, truly like, it is so, it's such a refined and clear thing now to me that like this method of communicating information to people is fundamentally broken and bad. It is so fucking obvious. It is so clear. And the fact that we would sit here and anybody would sit here and defend it and want to be part of it and really care about it is deranged. We're going to open it up. Let's just see what people are talking about. What's happening? Plastic recycling is a myth, study says. That's the first thing I see. Fans are freaking out over Donald Faison and his daughter's clueless costumes. Here's a fucking article about Greta Thunberg. Greta Thunberg used to say her goal is to protect the planet from climate change, but now she admits it's to overthrow the whole capitalist system, which she says is responsible for imperialism, oppression, genocide, racist, oppressive extractionism. Here I am about to click on the fucking article about how Greta Thunberg actually wants to overthrow capitalism. Hashtag a message to Elon Musk is trending, as is Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe says speaking out against J.K. Rowling was important. Not everybody in the franchise shares her belief. Like, that sounds like a great about as I'm watching entertainment tonight tomorrow <laughs> like well that is our show for this week we'll be back next week on Thursday with even more what future and as always I wish you and your family the very very best imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia the CIA and the KGB that's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.